So open, if you would, your Bibles to the book of Job, chapter 24. Now, as we go through the book of Job, we are discovering, little by little, that Job and his friends have a much different view of God. Job's friends have a different view of God than Job does. They view God as distant and unapproachable. And if we view him as a distant and unapproachable God, then we're going to keep him at a distance in our lives, right? Makes sense? Job, however, has a different view of God. Job views God as approachable and relational. And it stands the reason that if we view God as approachable and a relational, which he is, then we'll seek to involve him in every aspect of our lives. Listen, how we view God makes a world of difference in how we approach him. Amen? For example, if we view God as being unloving and uncaring and unresponsive, why would we even spend time going to him in prayer and expecting an answer from him? We wouldn't if that's how we viewed God. But if we view God as loving and caring and responsive to our needs and our prayers, then Prayer becomes a very important part of our life, and, and we're excited. We're looking forward to spending that time with him. And so how we view God changes even our prayer life and how we approach him and how we seek him. If we viewed God as being distant and unapproachable, then the only way we would be obedient to him is out of fear of his retribution, of his wrath. But if we view God as loving and caring and approachable and relational, then we obey him out of our love and respect for him. Do you see how that works? you see the difference? So our view of who God is affects how we interact with him. And so the question I want you to keep in mind this morning, and as we meet later on after the message, how do you see God? What's, you, what's been your experience with him? And maybe, maybe that's changed over the years. Maybe it's changed from, maybe your relationship with him is different now than it was when you first came to Jesus. Have you, if you've ever viewed him as distant and unapproachable, then I pray that you'd come to know him as a loving, caring, relational God as we go through this book. And if you've already viewed him like that, if that's already the God that you know, then I pray that that relationship will be strengthened as we go through this book. But I think you'll all agree with me that we're learning a lot in Job. There's a lot more there than we ever thought. There's a lot more there than just pain and suffering. Amen? So Job chapter 24 Verse 1, since times are not hidden from the Almighty, Job says, why do those who know him see not his days? Some remove landmarks, they seize flocks violently and feed on them. They drive away the donkey of the fatherless, they take the widow's ox as a pledge. They push the needy off the road, all the poor of the land are forced to hide, Indeed, like wild donkeys in the desert, they go out to do their work searching for food. The wilderness yields food for them and for their children. They gather their fodder in the field and glean in the vineyard of the wicked. They spend the night naked without clothing and have no covering in the cold. They are wet with the showers of the mountains and huddle around the rock for want of shelter. Now, who Job's talking about are people that once owned land, property but have been driven off by wicked landowners. And, and Job's asking that if 
if God is sovereign over everything, he's sovereign over even the days, even the day of judgment, then why hasn't he judged the wicked landowners yet? And the heart, the heart behind that thought is that God has seemingly brought quick judgment, quick and decisive judgment against Job for his perceived sin, right? I mean, his friends all think that Job sinned, and so they think Job's been punished because of his sin. And Job's heart is, then why are you withholding judgment against those who have sinned? There's no doubt about it. They have sinned. And if you view God as being quick to judgment instead of the God that the Bible says, who is slow to anger and abundant in mercy, then it would stand the reason that you would think that God would bring immediate judgment upon somebody who sins. I don't know about you, but I thank God he doesn't bring immediate judgment upon us who sin. I would be charred all the time. And Job seems to be alluding to something Eliphaz said a couple chapters ago. Eliphaz said, Is not God in the height of heaven? And see the highest stars, how lofty they are. And you say, what does God know? Can he judge through the deep darkness? Thick clouds cover him so that he cannot see. And he walks above the circle of the heavens. Job 22, verses 12 through 14. Eliphaz believes that God is God of all creation. That he's above all creation. That he sits above the circle of the heaven. And that's bad news for the flat earthers. But... Eliphaz knows that God looks down through the darkness of space, through the clouds, that he sees what's going on. God knows, he's aware of what's going on on the earth. And God sees that some people are up to no good on this earth. Some people are just wicked. They're moving the ancient boundaries, Job says. They're, they're moving landmarks. They're moving land that's been sectioned off and marked by a, a marker. To move the landmarks or these ancient markers back makes your property larger, and the person who you're encroaching upon, you're making their property smaller. Let's say you're putting a fence up in your backyard, right? And you decide on purpose to put your fence 10 feet further into your neighbor's yard. Well, you're making your property larger and more valuable while making his property smaller and less valuable. And I don't think that makes for very good neighbors. This is stealing. They're stealing the land. That's what Job's saying. They're stealing portions of their neighbor's land so that they increase in wealth and their neighbors have less profit from their land. They're stealing their neighbor's sheep and they're eating them. They're driving away the donkeys of the fatherless. And that's key here because fatherless means that the father is gone for whatever reason. He's died or whatever the reason is. And so the mother and the children are left fatherless. They're left without protection so the wicked landowners are able to more easily prey upon them. They're loaning money to these widows, and then they're asking for their ox as a payment, as a guarantee of payment. Now, if back then to farm the land, you needed what? An ox. So if I take your ox as guarantee of payment, how are you going to farm your land to repay the loan? You're not. So that's how they're getting these, this land. They're getting it through trickery they're driving these widows and these children from their own land and they're not working so they're in the wilderness starving they're naked they're cold and they're, they're now forced to glean off the very land that they once owned and job wants to know when is judgment going to come against these wicked landowners 
we can all understand Job's heart. I mean, we've all seen movies where the bad guy is just extra bad, right? And, and he's so evil that we're just, we're just, we can't wait for him to get what's coming to him, right? We want him to get what's coming to him and then some. And that's all Job wants here. Job wants him, he wants these wicked landowners to get what's coming to them. And he wants God to bring the judgment. Job's view of God in this instance is that God is quick to judge the innocent and not the wicked. Now, we know that God is patient. We know that God isn't slacking, that he isn't ignoring the wicked, but rather he's long-suffering toward them. And the Bible tells us why. Peter tells us why. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God knows the ultimate fate of the wicked. Yet he's long-suffering to them. He gives them every opportunity to repent. So that in the end, when they do stand before the Lord in judgment, they have no excuse. They have no one to blame but themselves for what happens after that. So God is long-suffering and patient. He's not ignoring them. He's just giving them extra time to repent. Chapter 24, verse 9. Some snatch the fatherless from the breast and take a pledge from the poor. They cause the poor to go naked without clothing. They take away the sheaves from the hungry. They press out oil with their walls. They tread wine presses, yet suffer thirst. The dying groan in the city and the souls of the wounded cry out, yet God does not charge them with wrong. They're forcing them into labor. They're not even being paid for it. They're just forced labor on their own land. Some of these wicked landowners are even stealing the nursing babies right from the breast of their mothers as, again, as payment, as guaranteed of payment, that if they don't repay this loan, these children will be sold into slavery. People are working harder and harder and harder, and they're not getting ahead. There's no way they can make ends meet. And the wicked are just getting wealthier and wealthier and wealthier off the backs of these poor people. They're being oppressed, and they're groaning. They're crying out to the Lord, and, and Job's saying the Lord doesn't seem to hear them. It seems as if God's doing nothing to stop this. In Egypt, if you remember, the people were being oppressed by who? Pharaoh. He as Pharaoh demanded more and more and more of them, they were able to do less and less. They were getting weaker as Pharaoh was getting stronger. So the children of Israel in Exodus tells us, groaned because of the bondage. They cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. They wanted to be delivered from the bondage of Pharaoh. Just as Job wants to see these poor people, these poor landowners, delivered from the bondage and the oppression of the wicked landowners, God heard their cry, and he sent Moses as a deliverer. Now, Moses, we know, is a type of the Savior to come. Moses is a type of our Savior in the Bible. So God heard the cry of his people who were under bondage and under the oppression of sin, and he sent someone to deliver them from the bondage of sin in Egypt. And what that was, as we read through that story, it's a foreshadowing. It's a foreshadowing of what God would do for the whole world as he sent his only begotten son to free this world of the oppression of sin and under the bondage of sin. And we know that he accomplished that through his death and resurrection. 
His death and resurrection had a far-reaching effect. It's, it's affected mankind even down through our generation and will continue, hopefully, until our Lord comes again through every generation after us. It will continue to have that effect. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, the Bible tells us, will be saved. And what are we saved from? The bondage of sin and death, the oppression from sin. Even after 2,000 years, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is still as powerful today as it was then. It has the power, continues to have the power, to free us from death. That's why, you know, we listen, my, my life has been touched by addiction, not personally, but personally as far as family goes, friends, people who I know and love. You, many of you have had people in your lives that touched, lives touched by addictions. And, you know, we talk about 12 steps. We talk about all kinds of steps. There's one step. There's one step for all of us, not just the people who are addicted, but for all of us in the bondage of sin. There's one step, and that one step is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the answer to the bondage, to the question of bondage, uh, that people are in bondage to sin and oppressed by sin. He is the only answer. We don't have to go seeking anywhere else. He is the answer. Amen? Verse 13. There are those who rebel against the light. They do not know its ways nor abide in its paths. The murderer rises with the light. He kills the poor and needy. And in the night he is like a thief. The eye of the adulterer waits for the twilight, saying, No eye will see me. And he disguises his face. In the dark they break into houses, which they marked for themselves in the daytime. They do not know the light, for the morning is the same to them as the shadow of death. If someone recognizes them, they are in the terrors of the shadow of death. You know, as I read that verse, they mark, they break into the houses that they marked during the day. You guys ever see Home Alone? That's become Oliver's favorite movie. My favorite part is, keep the change, you filthy animal. And so he says that all the time now. But if you remember, Joe Pesci goes around and mark, he makes sure these houses are going to be empty during the day. He marks them at day so you can come back at night and rob them, right? That's the whole story behind this. That's been going on since way before Hollywood was happening in the time of Job. They were marking these houses and then coming back at night and just robbing them. Job says the wicked rebel against the light. What they're doing... They want to do in the dark. They don't want this revealed in the light. They dread the light of day because it's shining the light on what they're doing in the darkness. They're, listen, in order to do what they're doing, they have to hide out in the darkness. And the light dispels the darkness. The light reveals what they're doing. They prefer to do this at night. So they're not seen by the day. They're not seen in the daylight. Jesus said, and this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So to the wicked, to the wicked landowners, light, for us, light is what? Life. To them, it's the shadow of death because they're hiding from the light. They're fearing that the light's going to reveal what they're doing. It's going to reveal their wickedness. So for them, the light actually becomes a shadow of death. Paul had this to say to the church in Rome. The night is far spent and the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the work of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not to be, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, 
but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. As followers of Jesus Christ, as followers of the light, we've stepped out of the darkness. We've stepped out of the darkness and into the light of Christ. We're no longer to make provisions for the flesh. The wicked, however, they thrive in the darkness. They thrive on the works of the flesh. That's what makes us different. That's what separates us. That would, that's what makes a follower of Jesus Christ, a follower of the light, different than who, what Job's describing here, the wicked who thrive in the darkness. We want his light. We want his word to reveal the works of the flesh that are still alive in us, don't we? We want that light to come into us to reveal those works of the flesh so that they can what? Be brought to light so that it, God's grace can remove that from our lives. Job wondered why the wicked were sinning in the dark and God had yet to shine his light upon that. God had yet to shine his light on them in the dark. John writes, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Listen to that. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has no way to overcome that light. It's too powerful. Another translation says the darkness cannot extinguish the light. Even though they do their work in the darkness, it doesn't mean the light of Christ can't shine through that darkness into their hardened hearts. You know, I remember one of the first times I took my boys to Yankee Stadium and went with my brother-in-law, and just driving up to the old stadium in the Bronx, you go past all these burned-out buildings. Now, from the outside, it looks like Beirut over there. I mean, they're, they're just burned-out buildings. They're empty. But as you drive by, you see people in the windows. You see people in the doorways. People live there. They're in the darkness. Which it's bright and sunny outside, but they don't come out. They only come out at night. The light of Christ can shine even through that dark place into the hearts of those who have hardened their hearts. And that light can bring even the most hardened among us to repentance. Amen? That's why God may be seemingly ignoring this, seemingly waiting and approving on this, but he's not. He's giving them that time to let that light penetrate their hearts. Look at verse 18. They should be swift to the face of the waters. Their portions should be cursed in the earth so that no one would turn into the way of their vineyard as drought and heat consume the snow water so the grave consumes those who have sinned. The womb should forget him. The worm should feed sweetly on him. He should be remembered no more. The wickedness should be broken like a tree, for he preys on the barren who do not bear, and he does no good for the widow. Now Job tells God what God should do to the wicked, to those who are a threat to society, to those who are sinning against the people, against their rights, against their property. He feels that, that the wicked, these wicked landowners, should be, their life should be brief that they should go to their grave early, that their portions should be cur uh, cursed, that their graves unmarked, that their families forgotten, that their families would forget them. And he concludes that they should even be eaten by worms, that the worms should find them sweet to the taste. Job's got a real fascination with worms, doesn't he? <laughs> Job wants them punished, but he wants them punished in this life, not the next. He wants them punished now, immediately. And Job doesn't understand that this life, the life we live now, is meant for repentance. 
because God wants no one to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. There's no repentance on the other side of the grave. There is no second chance. What waits on the other side of the grave is judgment, not repentance. So I thank God. I thank God that he is who he is. Because I wonder what we would do if we were God. Would we be as patient with others as God has been with us? Would we be as merciful and as graceful with others as God has been with us? I don't know. Especially driving to work in the morning. There'd be a lot less cars on the road, I can tell you that. Come on, you can't tell me that you're not, I'm, not, I'm the only one that says, I wish I could just point my finger and zap that car right there. <laughs> You've all thought the same thing. Can you imagine Job in this state of mind, what he would have done had he had the power to fix this himself? So I thank God that we are not God and he is, and that he is merciful and kind and loving and patient and slow to anger. Because I don't know that I would be. Listen, if he wasn't merciful and graceful and gracious rather and slow to anger, I would have been gone a long time ago. Look at verse 22. But God draws the mighty away with his power. He rises up, but no man is sure of life. He gives them security and they rely on it. His eyes are on their ways. They are exalted for a little while and then they are gone. They are brought low. They are taken out of the way like all others. They dry out like the heads of grain. Now, if it is not so, who will prove me a liar and make my speech worth nothing? So Job says God seems to not notice what the wicked are doing. And God seems to be silent. He seems to be distant from the wicked. He's not concerned, it seems to Job, to be concerned. God doesn't seem to be concerned with what's going on. That they seem to be just running roughshod over all these people. Job's viewing God at this moment as a God, as a God whose inaction could be perceived as approval. God's not correcting them. God's not judging them, so God must be approving of this, right? And listen, there are some, even today, that believe that God, because God hasn't corrected them of their sin yet, that he must approve of what they're doing. Listen, God sees us. We've already established that. He sees us. No matter what we do to conceal our sin from him, he sees it. No matter what they're doing, no matter how hard they try to hide it, no matter how deep in the darkness they go, God sees it. And unless they repent, judgment is coming for the non-believer. And listen, unless we repent, correction is coming for the believer. Job said God rises up, but no man is sure of life. And what he's saying is that God doesn't seem to make a distinction between the innocent and the wicked, between the righteous and the guilty. But then he reconsiders that statement, and he says, but God does see them, and God will act upon them. Listen, the bottom line is that God sees all that we do. We all know that. Nothing escapes his notice, and he will, in his time, according to his plan and his will, he will act but make no mistake, God will separate the wheat from the chaff. He will separate the goats from the sheep. He will separate the wheat from the tares. God does make a distinction between the wicked and the righteous. Look at verse 25. Chapter 25, rather. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, Dominion and fear belong to him. He makes peace in his high places. 
Is there any number to his armies? Upon whom does he light upon whom does his light not rise? How then can man be righteous before before God, or how can he be pure who is born of a woman? If even the moon does not shine and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less how much less man who is a maggot and the son of man who is a worm? Well, fellow maggots and worms. This is the final word from Job's three friends. And I'm sure, like me, you will miss them. This is it. They've come. They've spent their time. They've admonished and beat up pretty badly upon their friend Job. Bildad, this is his last response to Job, and he keeps it short. As I'm, as I'm figuring all you are hoping that I keep this message short this morning. And he says, God is good. Now, this has been said before in the book of Job. God is good. It bears repeating. We should repeat it to ourselves all the time. God is good. God is good all of the time. Amen? And Bildad says, he's almighty God. He's all powerful. He commands the legions of angels, the armies of God, the hosts of heaven. There's not one person on this world, around the world, that God's light does not shine upon. Bildad says it's impossible to stand before God. He proclaims, how can man be righteous before, before God or pure before God who is born of a woman? Even though God's creation is magnificent, he says, it pales to, in comparison to God's majesty. All of that is true, isn't it? But all that gives us a glimpse into how Bildad views God. He views him as a distant God above everything, above his creation. God, in Bildad's eyes, would never stoop low enough to interact with his creation. And I want to look at that for a minute. I want to look at the view that Bildad, and by the way, all, his other friend, all the other friends have the exact same view, their view of God compared to Job's view of God. All three of them have shared wisdom and, and counsel that was spot on. They have. Not all of it. Just portions of it. You got to look real close. You got to do some picking through to find the good stuff here because most of it is, you know, there's very little meat and a whole lot of bones. So you really got to dig deep for the meat. But he says something here that is true, right? He says, None are righteous before God who are born of a woman. None are righteous before God. We know that. There are none righteous before God. But Bildad, like his friends, believe that God is distant. He's all-powerful, but he's distant. He's a distant God. He demands perfection. He demands purity from his children. Who could ever stand before him? Who could ever meet that standard? To Job, God's always present. God is always with his children. He always interacts with his children on a personal level because Job has that kind of relationship with God. Bildad sees God as unapproachable uncaring and when it comes to the day-to-day -day lives of mankind he sees him god as not being involved in man's life whatsoever not even caring about what goes on here on this earth job however sees him as approachable and relational who and, and he sees god as wanting to be involved in in our lives do you guys see him that way Therefore, Bildad's relationship with God and his friend's relationship with God is distant at best. They worship God at an arm's length. Job's relationship with God is personal. 
It's relational. And I think that's why Job's struggling so much through this. Now, here's the problem with Bildad's view. There's many problems with it, but one of the worst problems with it is if God is unapproachable, then man is unredeemable. Think about that for a minute. If God doesn't want any part of mankind, then mankind is unredeemable. We can't be redeemed. The way we were redeemed is that our kinsman redeemer came to this earth to became the God-man, God in the flesh, took our sin upon the cross and put it to death there, redeeming us. If he were an unapproachable, uncaring, unloving God, he would never have come to this earth to walk among us, would he? Now, there is some truth, however, to what Bill Dad says. We can't redeem ourselves because none are righteous without Jesus Christ. So there's some truth to what he says. And even Job has a restored view. He has a distorted view, rather, of, of redemption and righteousness. He believes that he can stand before God in his righteousness and declare himself innocent. Isn't that what he's been trying to do throughout the whole book so far? He wants to have his time with God. He wants to come into the court, and he wants to declare himself innocent before God. Isn't there a lot of people in the world today that think they're going to do that on Judgment Day? That they're going to stand before God, and they're going to stand on their works, and they're going to say, God, I'm innocent? But without Jesus Christ, there are none innocent. There are none righteous. Bildad views God as fixed in heaven, as walking above the circles of the heaven, and man fixed on earth, and in Bildad's view, and the view of their three friends, never the two will meet. And that's never going to change in their eyes. They're stuck on this. Job, although he does have some theological issues here, he's open to change. And more importantly, Job is open to being changed. You know, had the two of them existed on the earth when Jesus walked the earth, I would, I would venture to guess that Bildad would have sided with the Pharisees, and Job would have said, be merciful to me, O Lord, I am a sinner. How we view God makes all the difference in the world is how we interact with him. We do, do we have, do we have a personal, relational relationship with him, or is it distant and impersonal? God doesn't want that kind of relationship with us. So if our relationship with him is distant and impersonal, it's because that's what we want. And I think Bildad is correct on another comment he made here. Man is a worm. We're maggots. We're worms. Bet you wouldn't put that on your application. But listen, we've gone from a humble view of ourselves to a, a, a self-exaltation. Man wants to be lifted up. Man wants to be glorified. Bildad says if God's more glorious than the moon and, and shines brighter than the stars, how can man who's just a worm, who's a maggot, reflect the glory of God? That's a great question he asks. How, how is that possible? How can we glorify God by the way we live our lives is what we really need to ask ourselves. And I, and I guess the question for mankind here is, do we reflect the glory of God in us? And we're going to look at that in a few minutes. Or do we glorify ourselves above God? And maybe there's two separate camps here. Well, I hope there's two separate camps here. There's though hopefully those who hopefully are believers in, the believers in Jesus Christ who want to reflect God in them. 
so that people see Lord, the Lord in us, not us. And then there's that camp that constantly wants to glorify themselves, and God doesn't even fit into that whole scenario. The way we view ourselves affects how we view God. Because if we come to him as a worm, as a maggot, if we come to him humbly, lowly, empty of self, then we could be filled with him. But if we come to him already self-exalted, already filled with ourselves, there's no room for God in our lives, is there? So our prayer should always be, Lord, more of you and less of me. Look at chapter 26. But Job answered and said, How have you helped him who is without power? How have you saved the arm that has no strength? How have you counseled one who has no wisdom? And how have you declared sound advice to many? To whom have you uttered words and whose spirit came from you? And what Job's saying to build that now is, what wisdom have you offered me so far? What counsel have you offered me that's made even the slightest difference in my life? What has the multitude of your words accomplished here? Job's wondering where the wisdom of his friends are, is. I mean, these are older, more experienced people, his friends. And, and he's looking to them for sound wisdom. He's looking to them for advice. And instead he gets nothing. You see, Job's looking in the wrong place for wisdom and advice. It's not going to come from his friends. Where Job's going to grow, where Job's going to gain wisdom, is actually in the midst of the trial that he's in. Oswald Chambers is quoted as saying, you can't make wine without first crushing the grapes. You don't get wine until the grapes have succumbed to that crushing pressure. The only way Christians experience the wine of maturity is to be subjected to the, pressing, the pressure of trials, the crushing pressure of trials. It's through our trials, it's through the pain, it's through the suffering that our weaknesses, that our flaws, that those impurities that are in us come to the surface. You know, you think of a, a goldsmith and how a goldsmith will take a lump of gold, just this block of gold, and inside that block, he knows our impurities. You can't see them from the outside. They only become evident after the gold has been placed in, in a super high-heated furnace, and that gold melts, that those impurities rise to the surface. And then he's able to take a skimmer and just skim them off of the top. Peter wrote, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Christ Jesus. Our trials, in the midst of our trials, when we're under pressure, when we're feeling the heat of those trials, it causes all that dross in our life, all that junk that's built up inside of us to rise up to the surface where God can skim it off by his grace. And only God knows how much pressure to apply. Because with gold, if you apply too much heat, you ruin it. If you apply too little heat, the impurities remain and it mars the beauty of the finished product. So when we feel that heat, when we feel the pressure building up in our lives, 
It's our master refiner bringing out those impurities in our lives so that he could see our reflection. See, that's how the goldsmith knew when all the impurities were out of the gold. When he looked at that liquid gold, he could see his own reflection in the gold, meaning the impurities were gone. When the Lord takes all those impurities out of our life, he can see Jesus Christ in us, and others can see him through us. So that's how a follower of Jesus Christ reflects God in us. But there are many Christians today who come at us from the viewpoint of, I believe that Jesus died for my sin. I believe that he took my place on the cross so that I can enjoy my best life now. I want to live a life void of trials, void of the hardships and the suffering that come from it. There are so many today that think this is what Christianity is all about. Jesus said, you know, the problem with that whole line of thinking is that it goes completely and totally against what God's word says. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself or herself and pick up their cross daily and follow me. What is the cross? What does it represent? Well, in that day, it represented death. It represented pain. It represented suffering. So how could we as his followers want a life free from trial? Expect a life free from trial. Expect a life free from suffering. If those very things, if the suffering, if the trials actually draw us closer to him and make us more like him, why would we want to live a life void of those things? And I know this sounds crazy, but we should actually embrace the trials as they come because we know it's increasing our faith. We know it's making us more like him. We know it's drawing us closer to him. Paul wrote to the church in Philippi that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. We all want to know the power of his resurrection. But how many of us want to share in this suffering? One commentator wrote, For the Christian, the cross of Christ is not merely a past place of substitution. It is a present place of execution. Let me say that again. The cross of Christ is not merely a place of past substitution. It is a present day place of daily execution. He goes on to write, never let the cross lose its crucifying power in your life. Jesus died for us to save us from hell, but not save us from the cross. He died so that we could be glorified, but not keep us from being crucified. And what he's saying is that it's at the cross. As we pick up that cross daily and follow him, it's at the cross where we put to death what? Self, our flesh. We execute it there. When we learn... Through our trials, when we learn to mature, when we learn that we grow there, that's when our life begins to be lived in the shadow of the cross. When we realize that it's through those trials that are bringing those impurities out of us so that we're putting them to death, we're executing them, so that we're becoming more and more and more formed into the image of Christ, that's when we start living more and more in the shadow of that cross. It's there that Jesus tells us to die daily to self, self-reliance, self-centeredness, self-indulgence, self-exaltation, selfishness. That's where we put it to death. 
It's daily dying to self on that cross so that we look more like him and less like us so that his reflection is seen in us by everyone who looks at us. Listen, God can't be reflected in us if we still maintain the impurities of self, can he? And so it's at the cross where we put self to death. Paul said this perfectly when he said, I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul also said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why? Why did Paul live like that? Why did Paul think like that? Because Paul knew that there was only one way. There was only one thing that could transform mankind, and that was the power of the cross. That was it. Therefore, everything Paul did, everything Paul said, every ministry that he had was done in the shadow of the cross. And as a result, Paul never looked to himself. He always looked to the cross. It was never about him. It was never about his comfort. It was never about his welfare. It was never about his provision. It was all about Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's how Paul lived his life. So much so that Paul was transformed from a man who had such a hardened heart towards God and his people to a man whose heart broke for God and the people of God. Paul wanted nothing more in his life than just get out of the way of God and let God, let God's power be manifested through him. And I pray that we want to live our lives in that same way. We're never going to grow beyond where we are in this Christian walk if we don't first learn that trials are not meant to punish us. They are meant to grow us. Amen? So here's a question for you for later on for our Rima Fellowship. How does picking up the cross daily help you tomorrow when the car doesn't start? How does it help you when the kids are sick or the job, you lose your job or, or, or you have financial problems? So that's something to think about as we gather later on. Here's another question, and it's on the sheet that you have on the back of your bulletin. How do we grow through trials? Look at verse 5 of chapter 25, 26, rather. The dead tremble, those under the waters and those inhabiting them. Sheol is naked before him, and destruction has no covering. He stretches out the, the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the water in his thick clouds, yet the clouds are not broken under it. He covers the face of the throne. He spreads his cloud over it. I went a little far, far again. Get a little carried away with myself. So just going back to verses 5 and 6, Job says, Nothing escapes the eye of God. Not even the lowest, blackest depths of hell, not even the place of destruction or abandon, it's called in the Bible, are naked before God. God knows all. There's no hiding. There's no escaping. There's no justifying. He knows all. He knows our thoughts. He knows our motives. How scary is that? And that is why he knows just the right time to allow us to, to put us into the refiner's fire. He knows just the right time when we need correcting. So forgive me for rereading some of these verses, but 7 to 13, he stretches out the north over the empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the water in his thick clouds. Yet the clouds are not broken under it. He covers the face of his throne. He spreads his cloud over it. He drew a circular horizon on the face of the waters. Again, bad news for the flat earthers. 
and the boundary of light and the darkness. The pillars of the heaven tremble and are astonished at his rebuke. The stars up the he stirs up the sea with his power, and by his understanding he breaks up the storm. By his spirit he has adorned the heavens. He is, his hand pierced the fleeing serpent. And we'll stop right there. So Job demonstrates how his time with the Lord, and he's been spending some time in the garbage dump with, with the Lord, how that time he's spending with the Lord is changing his view on who God is. And I can assure each and every one of you here this morning, and I say that as much for my benefit as I do for yours, the more time we spend with him, the more our view of him is going to change. It's inevitable. Try it. Try spending more time with God and see if you come out different than the way you went in. God, who created the mountains, Job describes them as the pillars, and he hung the sky on nothing. Back then they believed that the mountains were the pillars, and the pillars of the mountains held the sky in place, but Job knows that the sky hangs on nothing. God fills the clouds with water, and they don't burst. They only bring forth the water at his command. He created the day and the night, and he divided the light from the darkness. And he placed the lights in the heavens as for signs and for seasons. And, the, and they also separate the light from the darkness, the greater light to rule by day and the lesser light to rule by night in Genesis. Job's relationship with God has caused him to discover that God has created all things, that he's sovereign over all things. That he, God, not man, is at the center of all of this. And as Job thinks of the detail that God has put into creation, and it's something for us to think about as well, he wonders to himself, how much more, if he's concerned with every little detail of creation that he is, how much more so is he concerned with every detail of our lives? Look at verse 14, and we'll end here. Indeed, these are mere edges of his ways, and how small a whisper we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? What is God's view of us? God, who is the divine architect of all creation, and as magnificent as all of that is, and if you've ever seen the night sky filled with stars, you, you just are awe, at awe, in awe of the beauty of God's creation. It's only a fraction of what God can do. I think we don't, we don't have any idea of the depth of his creative powers. We only see a fraction of it. His ways are absolutely above our ways. But he is not a distant and uncaring and unliving God, unloving God, rather, as Job's friends believe him to be. He sits above the heavens, a heavens, by the way, that he created with just a word. I personally do believe in the Big Bang Theory. God said, let there be light, and bang, there was light. He sits above the world that he created, yet he is mindful of us. He's mindful of us. The psalmist wrote, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. Indeed, who are we, maggots and worms, that God should even consider us? That God knows our pain. That God knows our suffering. That God knows every tear that falls from our eyes. Every hair on our heads. Some of us make it easier for him to count. He knows our situations. He knows, uh, he knows you by name. 
He knows you by name. It took me months to call Jeff Jeff and not Keith. God knows Jeff as Jeff. He knows us. Even though he's the potter and we're the clay. Even though he's the shepherd and we're the sheep. Even though he's Lord of all and we are his servants. Even though he's God and we are not. He's mindful of us. He, he's personal. He's relational. He's approachable. He's loving. He's gracious. And he's merciful. And he wants us to have a relationship with him. And he wants that relationship to be fruitful. That's how God views us, as his children. He loves us. He wants to spend time with us. As much as I love spending time with my grandchildren, you know, my blood pressure goes down probably 20 points every time I hold that little boy in my arms. Can you imagine how God thinks of each and every one of us? It's that times a thousand. That's how much he loves us. And he wants us to grow in our understanding and knowledge of who he is. And he wants us to grow in our love for him. And if that's how we view God, then it's going to change the way we live our lives. It's going to change the way we even persevere through trials. If we view him as a loving, caring, approachable, gracious, merciful God, it's going to change everything that we do. Amen? Please stand. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And thank you, Lord, for who you are and what you've done in our lives and what you continue to do. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. Thank you, Lord, for being faithful to us. Thank you, Lord. Go before us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.